All right, good to see you all. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Kings. Going to look at chapter 14 tonight. Last week we looked at chapter 13. Uh, Just a very interesting time at the beginning of the divided kingdom. Remember, the kingdom was united under uh, King Saul, Israel's first king, and certainly under David. And then under Solomon, but after Solomon, the kingdom split, and um, God gave to Jeroboam, a servant of Solomon's, uh, the northern ten tribes, and he gave to Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the southern two tribes, known as Judah, but they really were Judah and Benjamin, and Rehoboam would be the king over those southern two tribes, and uh, we saw very quickly that uh, Jeroboam had really began to lead the people in idolatry. Remember, we looked at the fact that he created two worship centers in Israel, the first one in the southern part of, of uh, really his reign, uh, of the area of, of his jurisdiction, if you will. It wasn't in, south, in the south of, of Israel, it was really more in the south of his district, if you will. So Bethel was one of those idolatrous centers, and the other one was Dan up in the northern part, right on the border of uh, modern-day Lebanon and Syria. And then, um, uh, so he created these two centers and had golden calves, and they worshipped these false gods uh, on these altars, which obviously was forbidden uh, by God for them to do these things. Uh, Things that they had really learned in Egypt. You know, when the children of Israel were still in Egypt, they they saw these things that the Egyptians did. And remember, when they first came out of Israel, and there came a disturbance, and uh, Moses was up on the mountain, remember, up on Mount Horeb, receiving the law and the commandments, and he was up there for 40 days. And the people began to get restless, and so Aaron, uh, Moses' older brother, uh, told them to take off all their earrings and their jewelry, and he, he uh, threw it into the pot and, and basically you know, mixed it all together and uh, fashioned a golden calf, remember. And, and that was one of the things that God nearly consumed them uh, at that moment, but he for, forbeared or forbore, I guess is the right verb, um, from doing so. But now we see many hundreds of years have gone by, and now we see the very same thing happening. And it's kind of a disturbing thing, isn't it, to think that, you know, whenever there's idolatry, it has a root in the heart of man. And if that root is not cut off, if it is not extinguished and replaced with something, uh, with, with godliness and contentment and God's word, it will express itself again. And now we see that again in the life of the Israelites. And, um, and before you get too heavy on Israel and upon the Jewish people, uh, it is true that this happened to them. All of this is history. It's, it's real. Uh, but understand that if God had chosen the Irish or the Italians, sorry, Pastor David, uh, any race, it could be, you know, um, it doesn't matter what it is, you know, um, that they would have done the same thing. The story might have appeared to be a little bit different, but ultimately it would come down to rebellion and sin, and then God has to deal with that sin. And so tonight, as we look at this, uh, we're going to see Rehoboam uh, continuing uh, to express this kind of idolatry. And let's just read through the first 20 verses of this, and then we're going to go back and take a look at it. So it says, At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick, and Jeroboam said to his wife, Please arise and disguise yourself, that they may not recognize you as the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Indeed, Ahijah the prophet is there, who told me that I would be king over this people. And also take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him, and he will tell you what will become of the child." And Jeroboam's wife did so. So she arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. But Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were glazed by reason of his age. 
Now the Lord had said to Ahijah, Here is the wife of Jeroboam coming to ask you something about her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus you will say to her, for it will be when she comes in that she will pretend to be another woman. And so it was when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps as she came through the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another person? For I have been sent to you with bad news. Go, tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been as my servant David who kept my commandments and who followed me with all of his heart to only do what is right in my eyes. But you have done more evil than all who were before you, for you have gone and made yourselves other gods and molded images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam, and I will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel, bond and free. And I will take away the remembrance, or the remnant, excuse me, of the house of Jeroboam, as one takes away refuse until it is all gone. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field, for the Lord has spoken." Arise, therefore, go to your own house, and when your feet enter the city, the child shall die, and all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he is the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something good toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam. This is the day. What? Even now. For the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the river Euphrates because they have made their wooden images provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who sinned and who made Israel sin. And then Jeroboam's wife arose and she departed and came to Tirzah. And when she came to the threshold of the house, the child died, and they buried him, and all Israel mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through his servant Ahijah the prophet. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war and how he reigned, indeed they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. And the period that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, and so he rested with his fathers, and then Nadab his son reigned in his place. And so a very interesting, very interesting passage, and unfortunately a very sad ordeal, especially for Jeroboam's wife. We don't really know her name, but she goes in um, Jeroboam's place, and she hears this great news. And I can't imagine, as of two parents, the mother seems to have the, the maternal bond and love of a child even more so I think than a father and to have her hear this news and then have to go back and walk several miles to go back and tell her husband and knowing that as soon as she gets to the door that the child is going to die you know she <laughs> she probably would have been better off just leaving Jeroboam altogether and not coming back to the house I wonder what would have happened But nonetheless, she did go back. But let's go back into verse 1 here and take a look at it. Notice it says Abijah. So there's a lot of terms, a lot of names here that sound very similar, okay? There's Abijah with a B, and then there's Ahijah. And one thing you have to know about this name Ahijah is that Jeroboam had a son named Ahijah. And we're going to find out uh, next week and the week following that Rehoboam also had a son of the same name. So as you read, keep track of the different kingdoms and who these people are, and especially as we begin this, that there are two Ahijahs, one for Jeroboam, one for Rehoboam. But right now, this son, Abijah, is the one, he's a child, he's sick. And his name literally means Jehovah is my father. And I think that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because Jeroboam was the one who was resisting God, And yet he would name his child, Abijah, Jehovah is my father. But is that the truth? 
you know, as far as Jeroboam was concerned, no, it wasn't. You know, when you think of how easy it is for a man who claims to be representing a kingdom and even given the mandate by God to be the leader of a people, over ten tribes as Jeroboam was, and something weird happens in the heart and the mind of a person when they, when they feel like God has called them. They, they, there's no coasting. You can't just coast and act like everything is good between you and the Lord. You've you got to continue to press in in that relationship. It's like marriage. Any marriage that is just coasting is ultimately going to drift. And so you constantly got to be building and, and pursuing it. And you've got to continue to be uh, building upon it. And, 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 and Jeroboam wasn't doing that. And so it's really kind of hypocritical for him to call his son Jehovah is my father, when in fact Jehovah was not his father because he rejected Jehovah and instead worshipped false gods. But let's go on in verse 2 and notice it says, And Jeroboam said to his wife, Please arise and disguise yourself that they may not recognize you. And so here Jeroboam was so proud that he didn't want to go uh, and, and, and invoke the prophet Abijah, or Ahijah, I'm sorry. He didn't want to go. He didn't have the guts to go. So what does he do? What does any spineless leader do? They send their wives to do the work that they should be doing. He sends his wife. Proverbs tells us, and this is a verse we know very well, Proverbs 16, verse 18, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Jeroboam was filled with so much pride that he, would, he, couldn't, he wouldn't allow himself to be seen going to a prophet of God. He would rather send his wife so there wouldn't be any association. After all, his false gods have been doing him really well, haven't they? I mean, the false god. I mean, why didn't he go to his false gods and ask for what's going to happen to the child? Why didn't he invoke his false gods? Well, the simple answer is, in his heart of hearts, he knew that the prophet in Bethel, or excuse me, in Shiloh, was the real deal. That he was serving God. Jeroboam was not. Isn't that funny? You would think that. If you really know the truth, wouldn't you just cash in your chips at that point and say, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm just going to be honest with the people. I've been playing a fool. I've been leading you all astray. Will you forgive me? And I bet who knows what would have happened, but it would have been the right thing to do. And for him to give up his allegiances to all these foreign gods and give his heart to Christ. That's what he should have done, but he didn't do that. And his gods were impotent. They were without power. They couldn't see. They couldn't hear. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 25, it has this to say. Now God is speaking to the children of Israel before they go into the promised land. And notice what the Lord says. He says, when you beget children and grandchildren and have grown in the land... And you act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything, and you do, you do evil in the sight of the Lord, your God, the Lord your God, to provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And here's the verse, and there, will, and there you will serve gods, the work of men's hands. Does that sound familiar? Wood and stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. Isn't that the idol that Jeroboam had erected in these two different centers? An idol that could not see, couldn't smell, couldn't hear. It was baseless. It was nothing. And yet we see this very same thing happening that God had warned them of. And you know, God never, he, he repeats himself over and over again. And you know, as you read the word of God, don't be put off by the repetition of certain themes and certain ideas. It's there for a reason. And the proof of it is because we just don't learn. <laughs> repetition is the best way to learn. And in grade school, the kids learn how to sing by singing the, the Pledge of Allegiance. You can put anything to a song and the kids will learn it. And they learn by repetition. God does the same thing. Because after all, we are children of God, after all, right? 
And I need that repetition. And may, I never, may my heart never grow cold to the repetition because I need to be reminded because any little moment I can slip. Is anybody aware that, of the feebleness in, of your own heart? Have you ever experienced that moment where you're like, wow, Lord, if you didn't have your hand on me, I could slip right now so easily. And the Lord's going, I know. And why do I keep saying these things? Why do I keep warning and encouraging? It's because I don't want you to go down that path. Because if you do, I have to bring the consequences. Because I can't deny who I am. God can't deny who he is. He can't just give you a get out of jail pass. This is not monopoly. He can't just say, you know, you, you meant well and, you know, you messed up. No, he's not going to treat it lightly. He says, crucify that thing and confess it and be healed and be set free. And so these are gods of gold that cannot see. Remember, even in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 5, when Daniel was speaking to Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, who, had, who after Nebuchadnezzar had passed and his son had passed from the scene, now we have Belshazzar. In, the, um, in that room as a, as a co-region, if you will. And, 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 and remember, there was the writing on the wall, and Belshazzar was there, and his knees were knocking together because he didn't see the arm, but he only saw the hand basically writing in, uh, in Farsi. <laughs> many, many, take you Farsin. You, you've been found wanting, and you're lacking, and your days are numbered. Your, your gig is up tonight. And what did he say? What did Daniel say to him? Daniel said to Belshazzar, he says, And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, and the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways you have not glorified. And so we see the very same thing happening here. But it's insanity when somebody knows the truth but willingly doesn't obey. And such was Jeroboam. That's why he, he, will, he knew the truth in his heart, but he's will, he, he was unwilling to obey. And so this proud man, this proud idolater, he can't go to the prophet himself. He sends his wife. What a betrayal of soul. That's hypocrisy. It's a betrayal of soul. And Jeroboam said to his wife, please arise and disguise yourself that, you, that, that they may not recognize you as my wife and go to Shiloh. Remember, Shiloh was originally the location of the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. It had been there for many hundreds of years, going back from the very beginning of Joshua and Joshua 18. But notice, indeed, Ahijah the prophet is there who told me that I would be king over this people. And um, you might want to make a note off in your Bible at this point and just write in chapter 11, uh, of course, in this same book, 1 Kings, but chapter 11, verse 29 through 39, because that's when the prophet Ahijah had told Jeroboam, remember he met him out in the field and he parted his garment and tore it in, 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 in pieces and gave uh, 10 pieces to Jeroboam, symbolically showing him that God was going to give him those 10 tribes. Well, so he, he goes there and I, and I imagine that this experience that Jeroboam had with the prophet was good news for Jeroboam. And so he's thinking to himself, well, my child is very sick and I know I can go back to the man. Perhaps I'll receive a favorable news. Maybe I'll receive favorable news, just like I did the first time. And he says, he says to his wife, also take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him, and he will tell you what will become of the child. And I, I thought about this, and, and not to read too much into this, but ten loaves. You know, and I thought to myself, perhaps he was giving a loaf for each of the ten tribes that he was king over, perhaps. And it may have been customary to bring a prophet or a seer, a gift like that. But I also think in here is a little bit of warming up to Ahijah, giving him these things. And it wasn't a great deal either. But God cannot be bribed. He cannot be bribed. He doesn't need money. He doesn't need anything. Oh, but people do. Remember, um, Eli I think it was Elisha and his servant Gehazi. Remember that? Willing to receive a prophet when Elisha said, no, I don't, I don't want a prophet. He, I don't want a, a gift from you. 
from the king of, of Syria, but he goes back to his house and Gehazi follows the entourage and wants to receive something for this miracle that God had done by opening their eyes so that they could see the armies all around. But God cannot be bribed. And a faithful prophet will say whatever the Lord tells him to say, and he won't just say what he wants to say because there's a gift coming in the mail. There's a check coming in the mail. There's an honorarium given to him. He's got to speak the truth. If he's a true prophet, he will do that. But we know that there were a lot of false prophets. But this man was not one of them. So Jeroboam's wife did so, verse 4. She arose, she went to Shiloh, and came to the house of Ahijah. But Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were glazed by reason of age. So by this time, I'm sure he's probably got cataracts. And they didn't have the fancy surgery that many of you have had, where you can go and, and get it done and clear up all this, all this noise in your, in your lenses. So he was an older man, and this was happening to him, and he couldn't even see. This place called Shiloh, uh, again, is, is in the district of, the, of Israel, in the northern ten tribes, just um, about ten miles or excuse me, Shiloh was north of Judah and um, uh, and then in verse 5, excuse me, the Lord said to Ahijah, and so Ahijah's there in his home <laughs> and the Lord speaks to him and says, uh, here's the wife of Jeroboam coming to ask you something about her son for he is sick. And then the Lord begins to tell him what to, how to respond to her. And you can't, again, you can't bribe God, and you certainly can't pull the wool over his eyes. He is the good shepherd. Are you going to pull the wool over the good shepherd's eyes? You can't do it. It's like playing chess with Jesus. He could tell you the end game before it even begins. He can say your, your king is mated. Checkmate. How can you say that? Well, you're going to move B3, bishop to B3 and your rook to you know, C7. And, you know, and he's going through all the things. And this is what you're going to do next, by the way. And then I'm going to take your knight. And then I'm going to take your pawn. And then your bishop's going to go. And then all your pawns, I'm going to take those. And then finally, I'm going to corner you. And then I'm going to move in for the kill. And God can do that. You can't pull the wool over his eyes. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. And he's omnipotent. He alone is all three of those things. There is no one like him. And isn't that why we worship him? You know, what a poor substitute for someone to worship the devil who is none of these things. A powerful angel, yes. But almighty God and equal with God or even equal with Jesus, not a chance. Not a chance. God is all-powerful. And the word of God is powerful more powerful than a two-edged sword, able to divide between the bones and the marrow and the, and the soul and the spirit, discerning the hearts of man. That's how sharp it is. It's like a two-edged sword. Happy is the man who knows the word of God. Happy is the woman who knows the word of God. Amen? And so it was when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps as she came through the door. He said, come in, wife of Jeroboam. Can you imagine that? She has, he has no idea because they didn't have, you know, text messages back then. It wasn't like a neighbor, you know, from a town on his way he says, oh, by the way, it looks like there's a, a the prophet is coming or, you know, um, Ahijah, there's a Jeroboam's wife's coming and she's dressed up, you know, uh, there's none of that. But God had something better, <laughs> his spirit. <laughs> he knew exactly what was happening. And he not only identified her before she walked in, but he also gave her the answer for why she had come. And she hadn't even given her, given the question. But God had already had it planned what he was going to do. And the irony here is very striking because you think about this. A man who was spiritually blind, meaning Jeroboam, came to see a man of God who was physically blind, but could see spiritually and wouldn't foil by the word of the Lord, this de and would foil, excuse me, he would foil this deception, this plot of Jeroboam and his wife. Over and over again, isn't that wonderful how the Lord can use? He says, you, don't, you can see without seeing. 
And Jeroboam could see, but this old man could not see, but yet he was seeing everything because God was showing it to them. So much about that that's so amazing. Remember, Jesus called the Pharisees the blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, they both will fall into a ditch. The Pharisees were spiritually blind. And it's possible to have all of your faculties. It's, It's possible to have eagle vision and be spiritually blind. And such is the case today. But notice in verse 7, it goes on. It says, Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God, because I exalted you among the people and made you ruler over my people, and I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been as my servant David who kept my commandments and who followed me with all of his heart to do only what is right in my eyes. Now, again, I have to mention this because it's an important fact. David made some really huge mistakes, did he not? Adultery and murder, I would say those are pretty huge. Most of us in this room have not committed murder, at least physically. Many of us, hopefully none of us, have committed adultery, but we all have probably in our past. And maybe even mentally. But David did both of these things. But what, what, what was it about David Because you're going to see as we go along in the word of God that God is always comparing kings to David. And the reason being is that when he fell, David repented. And David was a changed man. And his heart was always single toward the Lord, even in his gross error and his sin. He made some really boneheaded things, but he never departed from God. He did some stupid things. Anybody here do stupid things or have done stupid things? I've done stupid things, but I love God with all my heart. But David never stopped following the Lord and doing his will. That's the difference. That's the difference. Unlike Saul, unlike Solomon even, and certainly unlike Rehoboam or Jeroboam. So David is the benchmark that God uses in spite of his failures. And I love that because God overlooked his failures now and says, I don't see those things because they're under the blood now. I've forgiven him. And he's a changed man. But notice when he, when he says this, and I've torn the, the kingdom away from the house of David and I gave it to you, and you shall be, uh, but you've not been like my servant. You've not followed me as David did to do what was right in my eyes. And because God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't show partiality to anyone when it comes to sin. So thus far, this rebuke from God to Jeroboam is very reminiscent of the rebuke that he had given to Saul, Israel's first king, and also David and Solomon. In fact, it reminds me a great deal of Saul because the same prophet who anointed them, meaning Samuel for Saul and Ahijah for Jeroboam, each one of them pronounced them king, but they were also the ones who had to pronounce judgment upon him. I'd like for you to write some things down here, and I'm just going to read these things to you for the sake of time. But in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 10 through 26, and we're going to be speaking about Saul. Now remember what we just read, because the Lord is basically pronouncing judgment upon Jeroboam. And we're going to find that he did the same thing for Saul. He did the same thing for David. He's going to do the same thing for Solomon. And now he's doing the same thing to Jeroboam. And God is not a respecter of persons. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 10, it says this. And this is after Saul, Israel's first king. After he didn't destroy the Amalekites as the Lord had commanded him, the Lord finally uh, brought him to task on this. And he says, now, the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I, regret, I greatly regret that I've set Saul up as king, for he has turned uh, back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night, And so when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself. And then let me just skip down to the bottom uh, bottom of this in verse 15. And Saul said, they have brought them, uh, because, actually I got to back up to verse 14. So Saul was supposed to get rid of the Amalekites to destroy them, everything, But Samuel said, what then is the bleeding of the sheep I hear in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, they have 
They, notice, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. And then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said, Speak on. And Samuel said, Why? When you were little, now doesn't this remind you of what we just read just a few moments ago? When God was rebuking Jeroboam, he says the same thing. A very similar thing now to Saul. When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? And now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and I've gone on the mission of which the Lord sent me. And I brought back Agag, king of Amalekites, I've destroyed every, you know, I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But Agag is still alive. Doesn't he include, isn't he included? Is the Amalekite? And what, what about the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen? And then he blames it on the people. And finally, in verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And he said the same thing to Jeroboam. What about David? Remember in David, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, you might want to write this one down, and all, all, all four of these kings, the Lord does the same thing. And that's my point in this whole thing. God, he doesn't just take Jeroboam because he's this rotten idolater and doing all these evil things. No, he took Israel's first king, Israel's second king, Israel's third king, and now he's going to hit him because they've all failed in some way. And there was judgment. In 2 Samuel 12, Nathan said, You are the man. You're the one who took this ewe lamb from the field and fed it to your neighbor. Instead of, you're the one who took Bathsheba out of Uriah's house and did this. And notice what God says. I anointed you, David, king over Israel. Does this sound familiar? It's almost the same words in a way. I anointed you king over Israel, delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would also have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. And you've killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, David. Because you have despised me. And you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And he goes in and, 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 and down at the bottom, so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because of this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And the child also who is born to you shall surely die. There's the consequence. There is the hammer blow. And the hammer blow would continue throughout David's life and the life of his family. But what about Solomon? We just looked at that not too long ago in 1 Kings chapter 11. Verse 9 through 13, after Solomon had built all of these shrines to all these pagan gods of the wives that he had had, it says the Lord became angry with Solomon. This is 1 Kings 11, verse 9. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. And notice, therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this, and have not kept my commandment and my statutes, which I commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. And he was speaking of Jeroboam. Nevertheless, I won't do it in your days. For the sake of your father, I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I won't tear the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son, and, and, uh, and for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, he'll give the rest to Jeroboam. And so when you see this, God is not a respecter of persons. And he's not a respecter of persons with you and I. We see big names, big Christian names, and big pastors over mega churches, and no one is exempt. God will chasten anyone, whether they're his child or not. If they are in sin, he will chasten them and even bring judgment upon that sin. So how important is it for us to 
Be watchful over our own hearts. In 1 Kings 11, so the Lord is using Ahijah the prophet to speak to Jeroboam concerning the sins of Solomon and of Judah and a warning for Jeroboam in 1 Kings 11, verse 29. Let me read it to you. It says, and it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem. And this, we've already covered this. But notice the, the accountability again, that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, who came from Shiloh, that's why he's a Shilonite, met him on the way, and he clothed himself with a new garment. And he took hold of the garment that was on him, and he tore it into 12 pieces. We already looked at that. And he says, Take for yourselves 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you 10 tribes to you. And he would give one, uh, as he goes on, to, uh, to David's son. Now, because you have forsaken me and worship Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, uh, and, and he's speaking of, be, I'm sorry, because they have forsaken me. So the prophet is telling Jeroboam the sins of David, the sins of Solomon. And he's telling him, <laughs> you would think that Jeroboam listening to this would learn a lesson because God did this to David, he did it to Jeroboam and not to Solomon you think that Jeroboam would go, you know what, I, I'm going to stay away from that stuff because what you're telling me, because, I mean, look at this. Because they have forsaken me. This is why I'm giving you the ten tribes, Jeroboam, because they, the, the, those of Judah, they have forsaken me and they've worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right, etc. However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his sons and give it to you. And then here he warns Jeroboam after all of that rehearsal of all these evil things. He tells him in verse 37, he says, I will take you and you shall reign over all your heart desires and you shall be king over Israel. And here's the conditional promise. Then it shall be if. If you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did. Notice the comparison to David again. Then, and there's the condition, then I will be with you and will build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the, uh, the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. And again, God is not a respecter of persons. So here comes Jeroboam with a handful of sins. And does he think he's going to get off lightly? But he tells him in verse 9, you've done more evil than all those who are before you. And then verse 10, he says, therefore behold, and here's the consequence. I will bring dis and, and here it is. I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel, bond and free, and I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuse until it is all gone. And God would begin by taking his child, his son, perhaps his firstborn son, we don't really know, but his name was Abijah. And that's not all he's going to do. It says, the dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field, for the Lord has spoken. And, and the Lord, back in Deuteronomy again, I love Deuteronomy. If there's an Old Testament book that you've got to read over and over again, it's Deuteronomy. There's so much there, but God had told them uh, uh, consequences, blessings and cursings, and the blessings and the, and, the, and the curses of disobedience. And he told them in Deuteronomy 28, verse 26, Your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, and no one shall frighten them away if you disobey me. And now we see this hundreds of years later, now currently in Kings here, that very thing being meted out, that very same thing. And we would see this same prophecy would be pronounced against Baasha, king of Israel. In a couple of weeks, we're going to see this 
Uh, two kings away from now, I believe, we're going to see Baasha. God is going to tell him the very same thing because of the evil that he's going to do. And we're, we'll see that next time we get together or next the week following. But this would also be pronounced against Ahab and his family. You remember Ahab was a king of Israel. Further down the road from where we're at now. But notice Ahab met Elijah, and Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, and he says, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Remember, Ahab was one of the worst kings of Israel in the northern ten tribes. And uh, Elijah met him, and he says, Behold, I will bring calamity on you, and I will take away your posterity, and will cut off from, from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free, And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, which we're reading about now. And Baasha, we're going to read about this, and spoiler alert here, but Baasha, two kings away from Jeroboam, is going to kill his son Nadab, who's on the throne. And he's also going to kill all of Jeroboam's male sons. And he's going to be fulfilling that prophecy. Not because God told him to do it, but because God knew in advance what was going to happen. But notice back in Kings 21 here, Ahab and Elijah. He says, And concerning Jezebel, the Lord has also spoken. Because remember, Ahab had a wife named Jezebel who was a really evil woman. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the, by the wall of Jezreel. And the dog shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city. And the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. And ultimately that did happen. Write down this verse. 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 30 through 37. Because the prophecy that I just read you in 1 Kings 21, verse 20, now comes to pass in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 30. Let me read it to you. However, it says, Now when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she put out uh, paint on her eyes and adorned her head, and looking through a window, and then as Jehu entered at the gate, she said, Is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? And he looked up at the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? And so two of the three eunuchs looked out at him, and then he said, Throw her down. And so they threw her down. And some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. And when he had gone in, he ate and drank, and then he said, Go now and see to this accursed woman and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. So they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. And therefore they came back and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spake by his word Elijah the Tishbite, saying, On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as refuse on the surface of the field in the plot at Jezreel, and so that they shall not say, Here lies Jezebel. A very similar thing happens. And again, Ahab was a king of the northern ten tribes, affiliated with Jeroboam and certainly continuing in his wicked ways. And all throughout the scripture, you see God showing these things and and things coming to pass, and he is not a respecter of persons. So, verse 12, Arise, therefore, go to your own house, and when, you, when your feet enter the city, the child shall die, and all Israel will mourn for him and bury him, for he is the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something good toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Now, this is a really interesting passage, but because of the child's innocence and the Lord seeing something good in him, he would be the only one of Jeroboam's seed that would be properly buried with his ancestors. See, when people died back then, what they would do is they would, uh, uh, ultimately, they would, they would put them in a bone box. They would put them in a common grave of their ancestors. And, and oftentimes they'd put them in an ossuary, which is basically after the flesh has decayed, they would put the bones in a box, and that's what an ossuary was and is. And there are many of them in Israel to this day. 
And so he would be the only one, this son who had never, you know, this young son, he would be the only one that would receive a proper burial because of the judgment that God was going to bring upon Jeroboam and his sons, all of his sons. They would all be extinguished. Moreover, verse 14, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam. And this is the day. What? Even now. And who is this king that would do this? It would be Baasha. Baasha. You can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 15, beginning in verse 25 through 32. 1 Kings 15, verse 25 through 32. But Baasha would ultimately kill, um, after this young son of Jeroboam's would die, who was supposed to be king, when he died, then Nadab was put in his place, this other son, Nadab. So he reigned for literally one year or less. And then Baasha, who was not even of the tribe of of the same as, as Jeroboam, he was from the tribe of Issachar, he would kill Nadab before he even had a a chance to really begin and um and then he would kill the remainder of his sons that the word of god would be fulfilled now he didn't do it so that the word of god would be fulfilled he did it out of his own uh anger and out of his own wicked heart but of course god knows the future and he can speak as if things have already occurred before they've occurred. And in fact, he can speak even though the person who is committing this issue may not have even heard about it and then has done it. And then they realize, oh my goodness, what I just did fulfilled, you know, maybe afterwards, maybe he heard about it. <laughs> That'd be pretty scary to know that your actions are, are known before, they're, before you do them. I would say that's pretty spooky, don't you? It makes me want to walk a, a good line. It makes me want to walk with the Lord and do the right things so that I don't have to hear those kinds of things. But we'll look into more of that in the next coming weeks. But notice in verse 15, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. He will uproot Israel. Now, he's not talking about the northern or the southern two tribes. When, when we speak of Israel, remember from now on, Israel is the northern ten tribes, also called Ephraim, because Ephraim was the biggest tribe of those northern ten tribes. So you're going to see when it talks about Israel or Ephraim, it's speaking of the northern ten tribes. And when it speaks of Judah, it's speaking of the, northern two, or the southern two tribes, excuse me, Judah and Benjamin. But they're really kind of combined, and most of the time they just say Judah, but they, we all know what that means. Now you know what that means, right? And so... He will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers and scatter them abroad beyond the river because they have made their wooden images provoking the Lord to anger. And we know that they would make these wooden images to Asherah, which is a, a female uh, goddess of fertility. And they were these wooden poles that they would erect and they would worship and they would do all kinds of vile, perverse sexual things uh, in those worship services. They would have male prostitutes. Sodomites, sodomites, and that's what they did. Detestable things. The reason that God had brought judgment upon the Canaanites were for these very things. And so is it any surprise that not too many years down the road from this time that God would lead the northern ten tribes into captivity? The Assyrians would come in 722 B.C. and take them all out of the land and then replace them with all kinds of other peoples, Babylonians and Assyrians and all peoples from other lands that they would bring in and populate Samaria. Verse 16, and he will give up Israel because of the sins of Jeroboam who sinned and who made Israel to sin. It doesn't mean that God gave them up forever, but he did allow them to go into captivity. And that's really what is meant here. So verse 17, then Jeroboam's wife, she arose and she departed and she came to Tirzah. And then she came to the threshold of the house and the child died. So Tirzah is just up the road from Shechem. Uh, a little less than 10 miles. And then back in those days, they had well-traveled roads. And there would often be cities along these roads because it made it very easy to visit them. And it would be very natural for that to happen. So directly from Shechem, this important place back in, the, in Genesis, 
Just up the road, less than 10 miles, would be Tirzah. And this is where Jeroboam and his wife, where they lived, and where the child was as well. But the child died. And they buried him, verse 18, and all Israel mourned for him. And it says now in verse 19, it says, Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war and how he reigned, indeed they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. The book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Do we have that book today? No, we don't. We have the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah, but we do not have the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. And don't really don't know why that is, but this is the first time in Scripture that we hear this collection of records uh, of the northern ten tribes, this uh, Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. This, this book or collection of, of chronicles has been lost or it has been not, hasn't been discovered yet. And probably, and the reason it's not in the canon of Scripture is fairly obvious. Remember, the, the Bible is a book of redemption. It's speaking of the redemption, going from you know, Adam all the way to Jesus Christ, and then everything following. So there's no reason for this to be included in the canon other than for us to have a little more information on those tribes of Israel, you know, the, ten, the northern ten tribes who did all these evil things. God made sure that we had what we needed because when he gave us the Chronicles of Judah, it was for a specific purpose. It was because he wanted to make sure that we understood what was going on in Judah because it was all about Judah. Why is it be all about Judah? Because it would be him through that the scepter would never depart from. It would be Judah that David would come through. It would be Judah that ultimately Jesus Christ would come through. And Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, deals mainly with Judah, the kings of Judah. It doesn't talk much about the, the northern ten tribes. It only speaks about Judah and its kings for a good reason, because of what I just said. And it's referred to in other places as well. In 1 Kings 16, verse 14 and 20, this same Chronicles of the Kings of Israel is mentioned. In 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 18, it's mentioned. In 2 Kings 13, verse 8, it's mentioned. In 14, verse 28, it's mentioned. In 15, verse 21, it's mentioned again. And again, um, it's not there for a reason. And even if it were, the Lord may have chose, chosen to not have it part of the canon anyway. Because remember, the Bible is, is a history book, but it's a selective history. It doesn't tell us a great deal about the Egyptians, although it gives us quite a bit. It doesn't tell us what's going on in the Far East. Because this is a God's plan of redemption. But everything in here is accurate to the point. It's accurate. The original scriptures were accurate. The translations, there's little squibbles and problems there, but those are all known and they know what those things are and it doesn't affect doctrine one bit. So it's not necessary. But let's go on to verse 20. So the period that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years and so he rested or he rested with his fathers. Then Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. And we'll, we'll find out more about uh, him uh, next week. But let's go on to verse 21 here, because we're getting close to the end here. And it says that Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. He was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. So he reigned even less than Jeroboam did. Jeroboam had three to four, maybe five years uh, after him that he still remained on the throne in the northern ten tribes. Uh, and so he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, Rehoboam did, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Notice his mother's name was Naamah and Ammonitus. Underline the word Ammonitus because that's really interesting. Because who were the strange women that Solomon loved? Were they good girls from Judah? No, they weren't. They were the girls wearing the fishnet stockings over in the uh, other areas, the girls that mom told you to stay away from. Those are the ones that God says, stay away from that. But of course, he has Ammonite women. He has all these different women in his life, and they were all from those areas, the Gentile countries, that he, God told him not to do it. But his mother was an Ammonitess, and so she was a foreign woman who worshipped uh, false idols. 
In 1 Kings chapter 11, you might want to write this in the margin right there next to your Bible on this verse. Look, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 5. Because it tells us that Solomon, and we looked at this a couple weeks ago, for Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, this other deity, the abomination of the Ammonites. Yes. And who was it? Why did he worship them? Because he had an Ammonite woman. And the product of that relationship was Rehoboam. Now, it's not Rehoboam's fault that he was born from a a union like that because he had every opportunity and God gave him every opportunity to do the right thing. He could have been a great king, but he chose out of his own evil heart to continue doing evil things. Verse 22, Now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins which they committed, more than all that their fathers had done. For they had also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. And if you go to Israel with us, hopefully, I don't know what the, I I believe we're going to go next year perhaps, but if you do and you're able to go, save your money and go because everything that we're reading is going to, your eyes are going to be open because in Israel, there's a lot of hills. (laughs) There's a lot of hills and they would worship these false gods up on these these high hills. And we visit some of those places. And notice, they, they worship these wooden images under every high hill and under every green tree and there were also perverted persons in the land. And they did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Again, doing these abominable things, these perverted people are male sodomite prostitutes. That's what they were doing. So there's really nothing new under the sun, is there? We see that even happening today. So what happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and, the same, and this was the same Pharaoh uh, was the one who gave Jeroboam asylum early on during Solomon's reign. Remember when uh, Jeroboam was running from Solomon because Solomon was going to kill him because Solomon heard that the prophet had told Jeroboam that he was going to take ten of the tribes and Solomon's son would only have two. So what does Solomon do? He makes it known that you're, he's got a contract out on this guy. So what does he do? He takes off to Egypt to Shishak. And so it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem now. And he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And, and so he saw a weakness now in, in uh, Solomon's son Rehoboam. He saw this weakness, and, and certainly he could care less about Rehoboam. He had uh, some relationship with Jeroboam, the king of the northern ten tribes, but as far as the southern two tribes, Rehoboam, the king's like, I could care less. All I want is money. All I want is gold. And it tells us that he gave basically the treasures out of the, out of the, the temple, and he gave those things. He took away everything. He also took away all the gold shields that Solomon had made. Underline that. He took away the gold shields that Solomon had made. And then notice verse 27. Then King Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place. Do you see the the difference now in the the quality of the metal? (laughs) There was gold and now there's bronze. Much cheaper. Much cheaper. And it's almost like the Lord is saying... You know, when Solomon, that was the height, that was the the pinnacle of Israel's time. That was their golden 40 years. And I would say that the first 20 years were probably the best. 20 years of just bliss and the kingdom blowing up and and prosperity and everything else. It's not going to be like that again until Jesus comes back, I believe, in the millennial reign. That was it. And then after that, that climax of the kingdom, everything just started to fall, started to fall ultimately until they would go into captivity. And he committed, and um, then King Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place and committed them to the hands of captains of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. 
And again, just a lesser kingdom is very obvious from even the lesser metals that were made. It reminds me of Daniel chapter 2. When Daniel uh, interpreted for King Nebuchadnezzar this dream, remember, of the, the, the gold, the head was the head of gold, and then the silver and the bronze, and, and you go through, and each one of those metals is a degradation. It's, it's not as expensive. It's not as valuable. And you see the same thing here, just a degradation of the kingdom. Solomon, that was the pinnacle. And now Rehoboam, much, much less. And then from here it would continue to just fall, fall, fall. But there would be moments, as we'll see as we go through here, that reformer kings like Hezekiah and Josiah and Asa, where they would, they would clean the temple, they would get people back straight and right with God, they would do that. And um, that never happened in the northern ten tribes, but in the southern it did. There were a handful of reformer kings But in verse 28 now, it says, Whenever the king entered the house of the Lord, the guards carried him and then brought him back to the guard room. And it says in verse 29, finally, um, Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Do we have that? Yes, we do have that. And you can go into uh, 2 Chronicles uh, 12 and 13, or 11 and 12, and you can find a lot more information about Rehoboam. Some of it is similar. Some of it's a little bit different. And notice in verse, 30, in verse 30, and there was always war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. And so Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And his mother name, mother's name again, and, and her name's mentioned here a second time. Naamah and Ammonitus. It's almost like God wants to remind us again, who's his mother? <laughs> and again, it, it wasn't Rehoboam's fault that he had a, a pagan mother. Because Rehoboam could have been a really good man. He could have been a great king. But his mother's name was Naamah and Ammonitus. And then Abijam, his son, reigned in his place. So interesting chapter, isn't it? There's a lot there. And, um, but I find it interesting that God is just, again, he's not a respecter. It doesn't matter. And God had his times of rebuke with Saul and with David and with Solomon and now with Jeroboam. And really what an unfortunate thing it is. And yet David would shine above the rest and he would be the benchmark even with his mistakes. You know, be encouraged about that too. You know, sometimes we, we can tend to get down in the mouth and get discouraged when we fall into an area of sin or you've done something that you know is wrong. And I want to encourage you not to stay there because the devil wants to keep you there. He wants to continue to beat you up and keep you on the floor and keep yelling at you. And your flesh is going to be more than happy to accommodate that and even heap it on yourself because we're the, we're the best pity partiers that there are because the devil sometimes doesn't even need to get involved. He's like, oh, he's doing a pretty good job himself. I'm going to leave him alone. But can you imagine... The devil condemning you? I mean, the devil himself. Not a demon, but the devil himself. Can you imagine that? Just bringing condemnation upon you, and don't you listen to it, Christian. Because as long as you have breath in your, in your lungs, you have an opportunity with a breath to say, Lord, forgive me, and be restored. Now, you may have consequences, you may not, but you may, depending on the severity of whatever it is. But don't wallow in your pity. And don't allow the devil to keep you down. A righteous man falls down seven times, but he gets right back up again. So as we look at these kings, let it be a warning to us that regardless of their names, regardless of how big and influential they are, we are all cut of the same cloth if we're not careful we can fall into the same things. Because just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we're sinless. It doesn't mean that we're without sin. It means that we're forgiven. It means that our sins have been forgiven. And especially when we confess them. And so let's be faithful to do that. Confess your sins. Every single day, 
But when your head hits the pillows, the things that you remember, it's good to come before the Lord and to say, Lord, forgive me. And he's like, I forgive you. I know you know what that was. I know what you, I know that you know that what you did was wrong. And I forgive you. We do that tonight and be free because there's nothing worse than a Christian who's walking around in condemnation. The, the world will look at you and they'll think, where is the victory? So walk in newness of life. Confess and walk in newness of life. Amen? Amen. Why don't we stand? I know it's warm and we're probably ready for the air conditioning or something to come on. But Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for this uh, tour through First uh, Kings 14. And Lord, just for the lessons uh, and the, the warnings that we see there. Lord, may we be those people that, Lord, we don't allow your word just to go in our ear and, and to go out the other side, Lord. May we treat tonight what we've read. Lord, help us to reread it again. Maybe even listen to it again and, and really look at it, Lord, and, and be honest and let it warn us in, a, in such a wonderful way, Lord, that you care for us, that you repeat yourself often, Lord. Would you keep us, Lord? Keep us in your tender care, and Lord, deliver any of my brothers and sisters here tonight that are struggling with condemnation of any kind. Lord, condemnation only tears us from you, but, but conviction brings us to you, Lord. And if it's to you, Lord, you're going to sustain us. No matter how much stuff we've got to look at, Lord, you're going to continue to encourage and love us. Would you please do that work in us tonight, Lord, that no child of God in this room or an earshot of this message would feel condemned and walk away from you, Lord, but they would rather get on their knees, confess and be restored and know that for sure because that is the truth, Lord. We love you and we thank you and we praise you that you died to give us these blessings and this great, great thing, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.